The blast from our past network. Hello and welcome to the Blast from Our Past podcast. We are the podcast that gives you full-on movie breakdowns, TV show reviews, and more. All from the things of our nostalgic past. I'm John. I'm Adam. And I'm Will. Welcome, Ooh. Will. Yeah, Will, Willie D in the house. I was Big worried Willie about that style. line. You gave me you gave me the specific line with those tough words. I thought I was going <laughs> to flub it up, but I, I did all right. That's all right. It's not live, so we could have always uh, done it again. Yeah. Oh, good. All right. <laughs> Will, for anyone uh, who is not familiar with you from your wonderful episodes on our other podcast, Throwback Trivia Takedown, please introduce yourself to the folks at home. Sure, I'm happy to. My name is Will. I am an attorney. I live uh, about 60 miles northwest of Chicago. I am a married father of four beautiful children, five total, and um, uh, yeah, just a fun guy. Oh, that poor fifth one. Yeah, I never tell them which one it is, so there's always a little bit of sibling rivalry, which helps. Uh, That's awesome. So, Will, you are here to help us count down our top 10 favorite Beatles songs. Wait, wait. Is it the favorite or the best? I need to change my list now. Well, it's too late to change your list. Uh, Yeah, we do. We basically treat it as favorite. It's top 10. Our it's my because we each have our own list. So it's our own favorites. But whatever you want to do. All right. Give me an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Too late. We're just going to. We're going to have to do it live. Fuck it. We're going to do it live. <laughs> I've heard that uh, somewhere. Yeah. yeah. From me. Uh, and no one else. Uh, no any... one else. No one at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no one of importance, anyway. Yeah, yeah. hey So anyone who has uh, heard you on Throwback Trivia Takedown will know that there are two things that are important to you in your life. And we're going to cover one of those two things in Beatles songs. <laughs> what's What's the other one? I, I some TV show. Yeah. Some oh, guy. MacGyver. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> You're a big uh, fan of the already... new class, I hear. That's your favorite one, oh, right? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and the Star Wars prequels. Absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So we're going to count down our top 10 favorite Beatles songs. And I'm very interested in this. Um, not because, not just because Will is here, uh, but because, Adam, I know... Not exactly the biggest fan of the Beatles. I I don't dislike the Beatles, I will say. Right. I just don't get a boner over the Beatles like every other fucking person like older than me does. They're like, oh, they're the greatest band of all time. Meh. I think they're fine. I think they're absolutely A-OK. Um, but if you go back to that 60s, I will take The Who. I will take The Stones. I will take a lot of other people that I prefer their music over The Beatles. I'm kind of a basic bitch when it comes to The Beatles music. I have one. Uh, and and then one other, I have the anthology. And that's pretty much <laughs> all I've got. Uh, and so that's where I took my list from. There's might, might have a deep cut in there, actually, um, to surprise you all with. Besides that, I'm surface level. I figured that we were going to get three levels of lists here. We're going to get Adam's pretty much just the hits list, my list, which is going to be a lot of hits and maybe a couple of deep cuts, and then I'm expecting a little bit more 
deep cuts from Will. But you know what? You never know. Yeah. Before we get started, I want to I wanna lay something down here. This is something I've been thinking about. In theory, we could have anywhere from 10 to 30 songs we're going to be talking about. You guys right. have an over-under for how many songs we're going to have total or how many overlaps there's going to be. Ooh. Uh, uh, I'm going to say 20, 22. 20. No, 20. it to 20. Uh, I'm going to take the under on that. I also am going to take the under. Uh, I think it's going to be closer to 15, 17. Uh, I, think, I think the lists are going to be different orders, but I think they're going to be very similar. Very possible. Especially um, if all of Adam's songs came off of one. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You'll never know. Oh wait, shit! Well, I, I have mean, to talk about him. Never mind. Yeah, say we we will know. <laughs> um, this I will say was uh very difficult. I found to really narrow down uh the list because I could very easily do a top twenty, top twenty five. The Beatles had a lot of hits, and and Adam, I know you said you're a, a basic bitch, but. Uh, Millions of people yeah. completely disagree with you. Oh, yeah. I, I get it. And I, you know, I get it. They were huge for the time. But Oasis is bigger than them. That's what I remember hearing in the <laughs> 90s. So. Somebody said that. I can't so, remember yeah. who it was. All right. Well, we got three people and potentially three different lists. So let's go ahead and dive into it. And uh, I am going to start us off. I will say my number 10 spot was the hardest one to quantify because pretty much anyone that I had of the kind of 20, I roughly narrowed it down to anyone from 10 to 20 probably could have been put in that spot. So I had to kind of go with uh, maybe something that was a little bit more nostalgic or something more personal. And so I'm going for my number 10, I'm going with a song that I used to play uh, in a band that I used to play with. And it was one of my favorite ones to play. And I will say, I do look at a, a lot of these th- songs through Ringo's eyes because uh, I spent a lot of time studying uh, Ringo's stuff. Ringo is very important, whether you like it or not, in the world of modern drumming um, because, and this is may, may seem like a small thing, but ha- first of all, he was left-handed. That is important. But the other thing... And I don't really have one within reach to demonstrate this. Not that it matters. We're on an audio podcast. Uh, How Ringo held the sticks changed rock and roll. Now, he was not the only one to do this, but he was the most visible one to do this. Up until then, everyone pretty much held what we call the traditional grip, which means you held the stick straight in the right hand, and in the left hand it was crossed like this, kind of like you're holding a chopstick. Um, and you played it in a, in a rotary, and that's leftover from the days of a sling marching drum where it was cocked to the side, so you had to play it like that or else you'd kind of have to move your elbow over. When Ringo became famous and he played what we call match grip, which are both hands played exactly the same, everyone wanted to play like Ringo. And because of that, that is the standard now. And like I said, he is not the only one to have done that, but he was clearly the most visible one to do that. One of the reasons he did that was because he was left-handed, but he played on a right-handed kit, just Mm -hmm. like Paul played on a right-handed guitar, right-handed bass, but he played it left-handed. Ringo played left-handed drums on a right-hand kit. Yep. And actually, I can identify that because I am left-handed, but I learned learned to play most instruments right-handed, partly because that's just how I learned. That's what was available. 
Um, it was easier to learn that way. And I'm glad I did because it makes it much easier for me to be able to pick up any guitar, sit behind any drum kit, and be able to play without it without an issue. Phil Mickelson actually has the opposite problem. He is right-handed, but when he was learning how to golf, the only set of golf clubs around was a left-handed set. So he learned to golf left-handed <laughs> golfing with a left-handed uh, set of clubs. And that became his name. How funny. But he's not left-handed. He's that's, right-handed. That's very funny. All right. Let's go ahead and start. And as I mentioned, my number 10 was one that I played uh, in a band, and that's why it, it ultimately ended up on my top 10, and that is Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. It is uh, number 20 on my list. I love okay. Lucy in the Sky. My list went up to 25. Um, and I actually started <laughs> my list back when I did my re-ranking of all the albums. I decided to go ahead and do uh, a top 10 of songs while I did that. I've played with it a little bit over the last year. But yeah, L- uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is at number 20 for me. I What I like about this song is you get kind of different flavors, and it goes back and forth. We start off with a cool little sort of a guitar lick, and then the, when the drums come in, you expect them to stay throughout the song, but they don't. They they dive in and out, and I like the, the, the mood change every time that happens. Is the song actually about LSD? Yes or no? No. They've, it they've is said ab- no. It is absolutely not. It's actually it's named after uh, John's son, Julian, he had a really good friend in school named Lucy, and he drew a picture with crayons. Um, and Lucy was like flying in the picture, and he brought her home and he showed his dad. And his dad's like, "Oh, that's very pretty. What is it called?" Uh, "Oh, this is Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds." And uh, John, all of a sudden, boom! It was it hit him. That's a great name for a song, and he wrote the song around that. Yeah, the drug story's cooler. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I don't know. No, I don't know not, about that. Not, I like I like the uniqueness of that one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, Adam, go ahead and hit us with your number 10. Uh, my number 10 song is not even a Beatles song. It's their cover, but it's very nostalgic to me because of a movie set in Chicago. I am talking Twist and Shout. I was wondering whether anybody would put Twist and Shout on their list. That is one of the hardest songs for me to rank because it is so freaking good. It is unbelievable. Uh, I love Twist and Shout, but I can't include it at any ranking of Beatles songs because none of them wrote it. They didn't write it. It's a co- it's the best cover in the history of music. It's so good. <laughs> uh, 
it's it's no, a, it is. It's a good cover. <laughs> I think a you're a little cover. bit uh, glossy eyed because of your Beatles love. <laughs> Um, but yes, it was originally a 1961 song by the Top Notes. Uh, it actually became a hit, not with the Beatles, but with the Isley Brothers in 1962. Um, the Beatles did it, and it was uh, released as a single in 64, hit number two in the U uh, in the U.S. I will say, Len John Lennon's vocals, he goes for it, man, and I mm -hmm. love it. You can hear on it, like the strain in his voice when he's doing it, and I actually really, really like that. So let me tell you a little bit about that strain. This is something a lot of people don't know. For the their first album, Please Please Me, that was recorded in one day. They recorded every one of those songs over 10 hours. They had one day of studio time after Brian Epstein uh, was able to get them a, a record contract with EMI. They went to the studio. They had one day to record. That was the last song they recorded. John had to be guzzling milk in between takes because his voice was just just that scratchy. He almost didn't make it, but they had to finish. Yeah. Brian wow. kind of famously said, I don't know how they do it, but the longer they play, the better they get. Uh, and it really went back to their uh, Cavern Club days and their days in Hamburg where they just played and played and played and played for hours upon hours, and that's how they got great. And you can't deny, when I listen to the song, I think about that dance scene and the lip-syncing from uh, Ferris Bueller. Like It just it mm -hmm. makes me happy. It makes me feel nostalgic. So I, I really like that about the song. Adam, this was uh, this was one of the 45s we had, wasn't it? Yes, it I'm was. We sure. had a couple, yeah. and I'm going to mention that again uh, in an upcoming <laughs> one, because we had a few, I think, so our family, I think every person had a Beatles. It's, it's like, we were three kids, and I think mom got us each a 45, and I can't remember whose was whose, um, and we each mm -hmm. had a Michael Jackson 45. I can't yes, remember. I remember I, that one for sure. Yeah. Um, but I'm pretty sure we each had a Beatles one too, and we had a 45 of another one that will be coming up uh, a good bit later. Good choice. I like that number 10. Cool. All right. Speaking of number 10, Will, hit us with your number 10. All right. So this was, I mean, I, I wanted to have 12 in my top 10, and uh, <laughs> this was not one of them. This started out as number 15, but every time I looked at the list, every time I tweaked it, this one kept just creeping up and creeping up. Um, and I had to put it there. I'm, I'm going to say a little bit. I, my guess is it's higher on one of your lists. Um, I may be wrong, but that's my guess. Uh, it, one of my favorite things about this song is that um, everybody in the world knows this ridiculous piece of trivia, but nobody thinks they know. Uh, what is Paul's mother's name? Mary. Yeah, it is. Uh, when I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. I let it be. I danced with my mother at my wedding to the song, and <laughs> now I'm uh, I'm tearing up a little bit. Oh man! Uh, it is definitely the most Catholic of Beatles songs. <laughs> uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful song, and I love it. Uh, and I had to have it in my top ten. It's uh, higher on my list. Okay, uh, it did not quite make my list. I like Let It Be, but I've always been a mostly, mostly bigger fan of their kind of their upbeat stuff mm. and so my my list definitely does kind of reflect that okay to be fair and i i you know you could have said this at the top there's not going to be a a bad placing for oh, any yeah. song because i mean we could we could do because I, I said we could do a top 20 top 25 top 30 Beatles songs and most of those are still going to be hits mm -hmm. we could so do a top it, 100 i've got a top 100 i don't know that i could dive that deep <laughs> But 
We'll stick with what we got. All right, we will move on to number nine. My number nine. Number nine. Don't do it. Don't. Number nine. You have to. This is the time. This is my moment, Will. I had to do it. It's literally for this. To to be fair, it is the only appropriate time to have done that. Talk about songs that don't make my top 300. Uh, mine might be a little bit of a surprise. It is not necessarily a deep cut, but it's not one of their bigger hits. But I spent a lot of time as a kid learning to play uh, guitar, and one of my guitar heroes was Mr. Eric Clapton. And he appears on this song doing the solo, which is a little surprising because George Harrison, pretty damn good guitar player. Uh, and that is My Guitar Gently Weeps. Uh, higher on my list. Oh, While surprising. My gently weeps, yeah. It is number awesome. 12 on my list. It is one of the two, three, four songs that was jostling around. So we'll talk about it in a little bit. Yep. All right. All right. Uh, I was uh, also Adam. confident one of you would have it, have it so I could, <laughs> I could bump it down. Uh, my number nine is an older one. Uh, it's actually... Their second aren't, aren't they all older ones? Well, yeah, because they're all an older <laughs> Beatle one. It's their second uh, uh, ever single and the first in the U.S. It's Please Please Me. Lovely. Did not make my list. Did not make my top 25, but I love Please Please Me. It is a fantastic song. So yeah, uh, on the Please Please Me album, their first album, uh, written by John Lennon, um, it hit uh, number two in the UK and number three in the US, so it's not on their one album but yeah there's just something about it i've always i've always enjoyed about the song it's just it's it's like it's you know one of the from, from like some of that earlier stuff when you could tell the the band still liked each other and they would like do <laughs> stuff do stuff together and it wasn't actually like solo work wrapped around on the name of the beatles which is what it happens like from like 66 and on it seems um with some few exceptions of course but uh, yeah there was just something about this one that i've always always appreciated that is an outstanding right. choice. I'm impressed. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I honestly, I'm I'm a little impressed too. I wouldn't have figured that one to make your list. Uh, all right, well, you're number nine. Uh, my number nine is uh, also a George Harrison song. It is uh, a song that was outside the top ten when I first started. Uh, one of those that creeped its way in because it makes me so happy, brings me so much joy, and it is "Here Comes the Sun." Higher on my list. Okay. Okay, number eight. Uh, my number eight is, I, I think, one of their earlier hits, kind of back when they were still doing the mop top thing. And something about this one, I've always just, it's always kind of, uh, I don't know, just kind of always uh, resonated with me. It was first released as a double A-side along with uh, another song that made my honorable mentions, and that, uh, so I won't say the name of it, uh, but it is... We can work it out. Higher on my list. Oh, all right. I feel I'm. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of that here lower on. Yeah, a lot more than I actually thought there was going to be. 
Uh, all right, Adam. Uh, my number eight was your number nine, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. It's a absolutely gorgeous song. You cannot mm-hmm. deny that. Um, 1968, the White Album, written by it's my only, I'll say, my only George Harrison one on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, and um, it's. I mean, it's, I I didn't even know that it Clapton was on this one until I did the research for this time. Personally, oh, I didn't yeah. realize that. I knew now Clapton and Harrison were were good buddies. Didn't Clapton yes. steal his wife or something like that? Clapton married his his wife. Yes, that's what it was. That's what. Not steal. Steal is a terrible thing to say because she's a woman who has her own choices. But like, yeah, there was there was something going on there. Well, but, I mean, uh, there there are people that will tell you that uh, Clapton stole her husband too. But that was a uh, uh, they, <laughs> they they had an interesting relationship. All three of them. I don't doubt it. But um, yeah, the song John Yu is on yours too. Uh, if yeah. you want to mention some stuff. Oh, just I mean. It's it's a you know Harrison is such a I think it's at least in terms of the Beatles such an underrated guitar uh, not guitar player well he is an underrated guitar player but an underrated songwriter uh, in fact we've already mentioned uh, other than this one another song of his that we're gonna hear about later that is I think just an absolute masterpiece of his should be on all uh, three lists Adam yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well little darling you can calm your shit <laughs> uh, I just want to say yes this is a fantastic song but this is not my favorite version of the song um now granted it's a it's it was a live cover but i think i've probably mentioned it before but if anyone hasn't in 2004 when they posthumously inducted george harrison as the rock and roll hall of fame you have tom petty jeff lynn steve winwood and prince who just goes ham on a solo and he princes it out it's one of my favorite prince moments of all time um I think that version, I could just literally, I listen to Wild Michael Gentle Leaps, great stuff, and then I immediately have to go listen to that other version that I like even better. Uh, check it out on YouTube. If you guys haven't seen it, you can just check While My Guitar Gently Weeps Prince, type that in or whatever, and it is an amazing version. Adam, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal a little bit of a hot take here. How you feel about the Beatles is how I feel about Prince. Well, you're an asshole, and you're not my brother anymore. <laughs> I do not deny his musicality. I do not deny his influence. Yeah. But I find his songs to be a little overrated. Uh, all right. <laughs> Fair. So, all right, let's uh let's not turn Hang this on. into Let me uh, let me add something to while my guitar gently weeps. Okay, good. Um the so this this obviously happened uh, during the White Album. Um, there were lots and lots of times where every single member of the Beatles, or not every, uh, Paul and John, were doing takes and takes and takes and redoing every song. Oh, blah, oh, blah, da, I think they did like 75 or 100 times. Almost broke the band up. Um, and in some ways, I think George was emulating that, trying to perfect 
his craft, his song, in the way that he saw Paul and John trying to perfect. Um, and he had decided that he couldn't make his guitar weep the way he wanted to. He couldn't create that sound. So he reached out to his friend, Eric Clapton, and asked him to come in and play guitar. And Clapton's response was, are you freaking kidding me? No, 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 no. <laughs> Uh, they had never had a session guitarist ever, and Clapton said, I am not going to be the first. And George said, you know, I am asking you to. I wrote this song. You are the one that can make the guitar cry, um, and asked him to. And Eric Clapton agreed only if he received no credit. He said he will come in and play it, but he cannot receive credit. Additionally, uh, when George wrote this song, he was reading the I Ching and he had decided that he was going to let Karma uh, write the song for him. So he randomly opened the book uh, and looked at the first phrase that he saw, and it was Gently Weeps. And that's where the inspiration for the song came from. Karma was that uh, stripper in London, right? <laughs> they went too often, yeah. Oh, man. Hippies. What you going to do? All right, where are we? Uh, Will's number eight. Will's number eight. I wish that I could tell you that I was smart enough to have realized that this was the next song on my list because this is John's song that during the White Album sessions he did over and over and over and over. Uh, this is Revolution. You tell me that it's evolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. But when you talk about destruction Don't you know that you can count me out Don't you know it's gonna be Alright Alright right. No, not on my list Not on my list Alright, so this is the single version of Revolution uh, With the feedback, uh, the one that everybody knows uh, there are two other versions of Revolution. The first version that they did, which was significantly slower, uh, almost like an acoustic version of the same song, uh, called Revolution One, which is on the White Album. Um, and during one of the takes of Revolution, they got really, really silly and started murmuring, and they had people laying on the floor in the studio, speaking randomly. Uh, Yoko was laying in a bed. Is silly uh, a word for high as fuck <laughs> for you? Yeah, technical term. Yes, they uh, they had fun with it. There's no doubt about that. Uh, once they were done, John and Yoko said that was amazing. We have to put that on the album. And uh, George Martin is like, uh, no, we, we what? No, we can't use that. Uh, and John said, well, then give it to me. I want to use it. Uh, and then the rest of the band didn't see John for about a month while he created Revolution Number 9 out of what started with that 10 minutes of just random weird talking during the close of Revolution 1. Uh, but the Revolution, the single version, I absolutely love. I love the message of it. I love the, uh, the intentional reverberation, uh, the strong guitar. I love everything about that song. Um, I like the song. I it, It's just never been one that I've uh, gravitated towards. And I am going to try and pull it up because I don't even know it. You know it. I probably yeah, don't you, know you. You have not. to know it. Oh, okay. Then I know it then, apparently, and it's awesome. Great pick. 
I, I mean, it's on one, isn't it? Uh, I guess I've never so. looked. I'd be shocked if it's not. I don't, I, was it? Did it actually hit number one? I thought it did. I mean, maybe, oh, maybe yeah, it that. didn't. It was. I, I thought it did, but it was released as a double A side with okay. another single that was number one for a very long time. So it's possible that Revolution never got there. Uh, I don't know if it was on one. I can check the album, but I do. Yes, yeah. Now I know. Now I know the song. I listened to it. Absolutely, absolutely know it. Uh, listen to the White Albums version. Revolution won the slower version. It's uh, You'll like that a lot more, I bet. Okay, cool. Cool. All right. Uh, number seven. My number seven was one that uh, Will already mentioned and Adam apparently did not have on his list. Uh, that is Here Comes the Sun. Um, I music nerd out on this song very, very hard, um, especially because I did actually learn this song in high school, uh, and famously it has some odd meter changes or odd time signature changes in it. There's like a five eight and some other stuff. And as a as you know a music nerd and specifically a rhythmic music nerd because I was a drummer, things like that I found I find super cool and I have to learn them. And that was one of the reasons why I learned this song was because it had all these weird things in. But on top of that, it is roughly, I would say, a fairly simple song in terms of its composition, you know, the time signature changes notwithstanding. And it's, man, it's a beautiful song. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, boom. (laughs) I love Here Comes the Sun. Uh, Another Eric Clapton story. Here Comes the Sun was literally written... Uh, in during a 10 to 15 minute walk in Eric Clapton's garden. Uh, Clapton and George were walking around the garden. It was literally the end of a long, cold winter. Uh, the sun was shining for the first time in months. It was still cold, uh, but you could see the sun. And Eric Clapton was able to witness and watch George create one of the most beautiful songs he ever wrote. Incidentally, in, in England, garden just means backyard. Doesn't necessarily mean actual garden. Yeah. Good song. It's a good song. <laughs> Thanks for that, Ed. I I completely forgot about it. I'm not gonna lie. It's not on one. It's not on the anthology. So I forgot about it. <laughs> if it wasn't a single, Adam didn't know about it. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, Adam. Well, then what was your number seven? My number seven was your number eight. We can work it out. That's my Casey Kasem voice. Think of what you're saying You can get it wrong And still you think that it's alright Think of what I'm saying We can work it out And get it straight I'll say goodnight We can work it out We can work it out Life is very short And there's no time For fussing and fighting My friend it's, I mean, he had a guest, a guest appearance on Saved by the Bell, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes, he did. <laughs> he absolutely did. 
so this song from 1965 is on the Yesterday and Today album, uh, written by both McCartney and Lennon. Um, you know, I, I there's it's just got good it's got good collaboration. It's mm-hmm. got good um, you know the vibes about it even. So it hit number one in the U.S. and the U.K. and it's got a poppy feel, and mm-hmm. I like I like the happy feelings. I like the positivity around this song. One of my favorite versions of this song actually came from Paul McCartney's MTV Unplugged uh, performance, oh. where he actually and they kept it in the recording. He screwed up the beginning of the song. He sang the wrong verse first, and he stopped him about like five seconds into the song. He's like, "I already got it wrong." We're going to start again. And he starts the song over again and gets it right. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, that Adam said while he was talking uh, sparked <laughs> an interesting area of conversation that we should probably go into for listeners who are not uh, really, really into the Beatles, but like them. Um, a- Adam referenced the Yesterday and Today album, uh, which for a Beatlephile uh, is not. Uh, a Beatles album. Uh, it was one of the Capitol releases. Um, so when the Beatles were releasing their records with EMI, they had their British releases. Capitol released some compilations of various early albums of the Beatles as American releases. Yesterday and Today is one such American release that the Beatles actually had nothing to do with. They didn't put the list of songs together. Um, sometimes the songs on the American releases were either not sped up as the Beatles intended. Uh, they would often play things slow and then speed it up with their recording equipment to make it sound higher pitched and faster. Um, so yesterday and today, it, yes, it's out there. Um, Meet the Beatles uh, is is out there. Or uh, what else is out there? Um, uh, Beatles six, Beatles sixty five. Uh, These are capital albums that sometimes took the covers of the British albums, often took some of the songs, but are never identical to the British releases. Uh, In part, they always had fewer songs because in America, royalties were paid by track, whereas in England, they were paid by album. So in England, they would have the original releases. They would have 12 or 13 tracks. Oftentimes on the on the American album, they would only have 10 or 11 so that Capitol didn't have to pay as much. Oh, okay. Yeah. So so was it released on a on one of their quote unquote, you know, more accepted albums or was it just like on that single with the uh, uh, with Day Tripper? It, it is on an album. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Well, Wikipedia told me yesterday and today, so that's what I said. <laughs> and now you're right. I had no idea. I didn't know really anything about it. Uh, Will, your number seven. My number seven is probably my deepest cut. Uh, it may be on John's list. I am borderline certain it is not on Adam's list. <laughs> um, my number seven is uh, something that brings me joy and pain at the same time. Uh, it is 16 minutes and 11 seconds long. Uh, it is the majority of the second side of Abbey Road, and it is the medley.
uh, didn't make my list. All right. So basically, uh, a lot of people know this. Uh, Let It Be was their final album that was released, but it was not their final album that they recorded. The final album they recorded was Abbey Road. The idea behind Let It Be was actually originally called Get Back. And the idea of it was to get away from all these tricks that they were doing in the studio, overdubbing, changing speeds, all this uh, experimentation they were doing with sound, and just get back to being a live band, playing songs live for an audience. And they wanted to create an album that they could play live in one sitting, almost like they did with Please Please Me, to the point that the album cover of Please Please Me is an upward angled picture of the four of them at EMI headquarters in London. Uh, they recreated that same photo like you sometimes see brothers and sisters do from pictures when they were a kid. They literally recreated the album cover from Please Please Me uh, and uh, Forget Back with each of them sitting on or standing on the same um, floor uh, in the same position. They took that same picture for what was going to be the album, Get Back. That album never happened. They ended up using that picture for what people sometimes call the Blue Album, which was one of their uh, their compilations. Um, the Abbey Road medley is a bunch of songs. Uh, I think it's eight of them. I'd have to count them out to be exact. Um, but basically, after the Get Back project was an utter failure and they started hating each other. Uh, they tried one more time uh, and they made Abbey Road, but everybody knew, everybody could tell this was the end. The band was seconds away from breaking up. However, they also each believed that they didn't have the right to make any songs that they had written as Beatles and release them as solo acts. So songs that they had, uh, that they had started, that they had begun, that weren't quite done, they were in production, um, they, none of them wanted to take those songs and release them as, as solo songs on, you know, Paul McCartney's solo album, on George Harrison's solo album. Uh, Paul, along with George Martin, had the idea to take all of these song parts or song fragments and make an opera out of them, uh, and that it became the medley. That's an awesome story. It's a very cool story. I can't say I've ever heard this song. Didn't even know about it. You you need to listen to it. It's amazing. I will Um, have to do that, yes. So, and if you look at Abbey Road, uh, each one of the songs is listed individually. Um, However, the Beatles all called it the long one or the medley. They believed it was one song. I call it one song. The last part of the medley is fittingly called The End, uh, and it is my favorite part of the medley. Uh, One of the reasons I love it so much, I don't know if you know this story, John, um, Ringo famously hates, hates, detests drum solos. He thinks they're the (laughs) dumbest thing in the world. He thinks a drummer's job is to keep everybody else in time, to hold the band together. And he said the only time people should notice the drummer is if the drummer screwed up. And he was very proud of the fact that nobody ever noticed him because he did his job In his opinion, he did it well. Uh, However, Paul did not want the Beatles to end without Ringo having a solo. So there was a drum solo inserted into the end. Ringo said, no, we can't have a drum solo. Drum solos are dumb. Uh, 
the compromise was they would do a dueling solo with a guitar piece combined with Ringo's drum solo. And obviously those were recorded simultaneously on different tracks on different microphones. And then when it was all mixed together, they they cut out the guitar and left Ringo's <laughs> drum that he never intended to do. He never intended to be a part of a solo. Uh, but if you listen to the end, you will hear the only drum solo in Ringo Starr's entire career. Additionally, uh, there is what some people call a truling so, uh, guitar solo with all three of uh, John, Paul, and George doing individual parts of a guitar solo together. So you'll hear one of them, then you'll hear the second, then you'll hear the third. And if you listen, you can hear their individual styles. So the end is the only song in the entire Beatles catalog where all four members have an actual solo. That is cool. Yeah, The, fi- the final line of the end, uh, which is the, the end of the Beatles, is maybe the perfect last line in the history of... of popular music uh, and in the end the love you take is equal to the love you make and a lot of Beatles fans have that tattooed or have you know that's a very famous line they think it summarizes the band entirely yeah even I've heard that line before I had no idea where it was from but definitely heard it it's the very last line of the very last song of the very last album well I will absolutely (laughs) check out the medley I I thought you were about to say I will definitely get that tattooed (laughs) hell no (laughs) fuck the Beatles I mean they're great they're awesome They're okay. Ooh. All right. Where are we? God, are we supposed to be uh, Your number six, I think. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, my number six is definitely one of the more popular songs, and so I kind of expect it to show up on someone's list. I'm kind of surprised it hasn't yet, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. My number six is Come Together. I do not care for that song. I think it's actually a crap song. Wow. It is not. Uh, it is in my honorable mentions. It's in the top 15. It did not make the top 10. Okay. But I love it. Uh, classic song. I love it because, obviously, of Ringo. What he does in this song is so unexpected. He's he's basically writing on the floor tom, meaning he's keeping the, the regular uh, kind of tempo on the floor tom, which is not usually done. And... It's so unexpected because it would be so easy to just throw on a regular beat. And these are these, these are the things why people love, uh, especially drummers, love Ringo because of all of the unexpected things he did. If you go back and you listen to just the drums going on there, you would not hear a regular drummer today do that. They would put something very, you know, much more traditional of, of a beat. And he did, he did some weird things that on the surface may seem simple, but are big in terms of the mood and um, adding character to a lot of these songs and come together is one of the, I think, biggest, um, you know, one of the biggest examples of that in their catalog. I'll say when I said crap song, it might have been a bit harsh. That's not, <laughs> that's not a crap might, song. might have been. Might have been. I just, whatever it was, I've never cared for it. And that song is like, 
is so it's covered heavily. I, I know multiple different bands um, have played it. Michael Jackson, my beloved Michael Jackson. I hate his version. Mm. I hate every version I've heard of the song. I, the Beatles is probably my favorite version of it. Right. But that's not saying much. It, I got to, you know, I, it's just it's not a song I've ever liked. I will agree with you on one aspect in that I've never really liked any cover I've ever heard of the song, even ones where they're basically just replaying it. It just something about that song only worked with those four people at that time with their instruments and their voices. And it just, I don't think it works again. I don't think it works with anyone else. And I, this is, this is one of the few times where I, I really feel strongly about something. So one of the reasons uh, come together is such a hard song to cover is because of the Beatles tendency to experiment in the studio and make instruments out of things that aren't instruments. Uh, for example, the you know the beginning that I don't know if you call it a riff or uh, the beginning of Come Together the um, it that's actually not multiple sounds over and over. All John is saying is shoot me, and he's saying it with a clap. Shoot me, shoot me. But in addition to him saying that, they have manual echo going on mm-hmm. and echoing the echoing. So all of a sudden, him saying, shoot me, sounds like, people try to recreate the sound and they don't do it uh, mechanically. They they try and do it, they try and manufacture it with their instruments and their voice, and mm-hmm. it just doesn't sound the same. Yep. Additionally, come together. This is a cool story. Um, the phrase come together uh, was invented by a guy you guys may have heard of, uh, Timothy Leary. He was a professor at Harvard. Uh, he was kind of famous for advocating people doing drugs. Uh, he was running for governor of California uh, against a guy named Ronald Reagan, and his campaign slogan was Come Together. He went to John Lennon and asked him to write a song for his campaign. Uh, and Lennon was like, sure, I'll write a song. And uh, shortly after requesting that Lennon write this song and Lennon working on the song, Leary was imprisoned uh, over, uh, surprise, surprise, drug use. Um, John finished the song and released it. Leary heard the song in prison and wrote him. He's like, what are you doing? That's that's my campaign song. That's mine. Like, you, you have to give that back to me. You can't just release it. Uh, John wrote him a letter back and he said, think of me like a tailor. Uh, you ordered a suit. You never picked it up. I gave it to somebody else. Plus, uh, he wrote the song, so he, you know. Yeah, writer, Larry didn't have writer, a, lot to, a leg to stand on, really. Yeah. Hey, that was my idea. Yeah, it was your idea, and then I wrote a song about it. Uh, you know, part of me wonders if we wouldn't have been better off with Leary as governor. Definitely would have been more interesting, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> my number six um, is a very, very catchy song. I'm a big fan of it, because we also had another, we had a 45 of this one, and I remember listening to it pretty often. Obla di obla da. Oh, I love it. Higher on my list. Higher on your list, yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, it is the uh, it is number 11 on my list. We'll talk about it later. Okay. Yeah, we, haven't, we haven't had a single one on all of our lists yet, have we? I don't think so. I don't okay. think so. Oh. So this is the uh, – I'm not going to – I'm going to continue that trend because apparently this is not on Adam's list, though it should be. Uh, it is also higher on John's list. And so I'll just say the name and John can tell me to move on. Uh, this is something.
Something was number 14 for me. Oh, oh, I thought, okay. All right. I thought you said that you had, uh, is there another George song you were talking about then? I'll be interested. Well, no, the two that I had were uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps and Here Comes the Sun. Okay. All right. So neither one of you had something on your on your lists. Not on my top 10. No. Never heard of it. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling it up right now to listen. Wow. But you've right. heard so, it. You've heard it. Very. Like I get it, Adam. I know you're you're playing a, you're playing your shtick. You're you're playing a part. You're you're trying to be the troll, um, and you're doing a good job of it. Uh, never heard of it. Oh my gosh! So let me tell you a couple things about something. Uh, there's <laughs> there a guy. Was, there was there was the face. I saw it. The face of recognition. The second it started, I'm like, oh, I've heard this. Fucking yeah, I should hope so. <laughs> uh, there's a guy named Frank Sinatra who called something. Uh, back in the 1970s, he said it was the greatest love song of the last 50 years. Uh, and I would say that in the 50 subsequent to it, there has not been a better one. Unfortunately, he also called it his favorite Lennon-McCartney song. So <laughs> it is not a Lennon-McCartney song. It is a George Harrison song. Uh, and in my opinion, it is of of George's uh, triumvirate, of his trinity, of of great, great, great Beatles songs. I have something as the best of the three. Um, I actually learned something about the song Something for the first time yesterday that I found incredible and amazing and it brought me so much joy. Um, Paul, when he wrote songs, would always write the music and then figure out the lyrics. He would create sounds that worked for what he wanted to do and then he would find lyrics that fit that cadence, that fit that Mm -hmm. sound. Yeah. Um, and we'll get to a song and, and discuss that a little bit later. Uh, but I heard a clip yesterday uh, of George trying to figure out the lyrics of something. Uh, and he's going, well, something in the way she moves um, attracts me like, and I don't know what to say. I don't know how to finish it. And and then I heard Paul say, well, just say whatever comes to your mind, man. Just attracts me like a cauliflower. You know, just <laughs> sing it. And, and it'll come to you in the future. And so... They start playing it, something in the way she moves attracts me like a cauliflower, which became attracts me like no other lover. And it fit that cadence. It fit that pattern. I thought that was beautiful and amazing. And it's so, it just, it emphasizes the difference between Paul and George. For George, the lyric, like he was creating the poetry and he was fitting the music around it. For Paul, he was creating the music, lyrics, eh, we'll find something. We just need to figure out what works. And surprisingly, that is uh, that is how a lot of modern pop songs are kind of written. Um, they will write a song, they'll write the instrumental, and then they'll send it to the singer, um, and the singer will just kind of improv on top of it. Um, you know, just and literally just they'll use nonsense words and replacement words, and then they'll go back in later and find lyrics that fit the melody that they've written. That was absolutely Paul's method. He did that all the time. But to hear George doing it and to write this song because he couldn't finish that line. Um, the uh, the music video for something is also uh, pardon. Uh, I'm going to do this. It's quite something. 
Um, it shows all four. Yeah, I know. I know. I roll. I roll. <laughs> um, it shows all four of the Beatles separately because again, this is uh, they had they were breaking up. Um, but the music video has each of them with their partners, um, and they're all in different locations and they're all in different outfits. But each one of them has found their purpose. So you see John and Yoko. You see George and Patty. Uh, it it really is it's beautiful to see. All right, uh, my under f- number five. My number five is not going to be on Adam's list, and it, if he didn't know something off the top of his head, he's <laughs> definitely not going to know this one. Um, and I am not expecting it to be on on Will's list. It is a little bit more of a deeper cut, and it's actually a song that three out of the four Beatles didn't like, but it's a weird song. On top, on top of all the really cool songs they wrote, they did wrote a lot of weird stuff. And for some reason, I've always liked this stupid song, and that's Maxwell Silverhammer. Maxwell Edison, majoring in medicine, calls her on the phone. Can I take you out to the pictures, John? I've heard, I've heard that one. Okay, that's it's on anthology, so that's the only way I okay. know that one. It's it, not a good song. It is not in my top twenty-five. It is a great song, not a good song. It is a great <laughs> song. I love Maxwell Silverhammer. It's a funny story, you know, a, a guy who's <laughs> just going around killing people. <laughs> so um, I'm getting my kids into the Beatles a little more these days, and I'm listening to Abbey Road with. My daughter, whose name is uh, my youngest daughter, whose name is Abigail Rose. Uh, yes, her name is Abby Rose. Um, <laughs> intentionally, uh, we're listening to this, and Maxwell Silverhammer comes on, uh, and she's listening, and she looks at me, and Michael, who's two years older than her, goes, "Dad, is this about a serial killer?" <laughs> <laughs> yes it is and he just starts laughing he goes they wrote a song about a murderer <laughs> I mean they gave this guy uh, his whole name Maxwell Edison uh, so was it Ma- studying medicine majoring in medicine Maj- yep it's it's silly and it makes me laugh and it brings me joy every time I hear it and so I, it's uh, you know I went through a, a kind of a weird music phase when I was in uh, high school where and I mean that literally I listened to a lot of weird music um, indie bands and and just odd stuff like that and that also included listening to weirder cuts by st- by stuff like uh, like the Beatles and and you know other bands like that so this one has always been one of my favorites I love Maxwell Silverhammer um, and I love if you can find some uh, video clips there's a video clip of them working on and perfecting Maxwell Silverhammer um, so most of the Beatles songs have the Beatles themselves playing multiple instruments. Um, and obviously they're recording them at different times. Um, and Ringo is playing drums and on the studio recording of Maxwell Silverhammer, he also plays something called the anvil, uh, which is a blacksmith's tool. And that's the 
ding, ding. Uh, he's, he's hitting it with a little bit of a hammer. Um, their roadie, Mal Evans, Malcolm Evans, uh, they asked Mal to play the anvil during the song because Ringo was busy. He was playing the drums. So you, you can look up and find video clips of Mal, and he's sitting there waiting. His face gets so big and happy, and he's like, <laughs> ding, ding. <laughs> it's, it's so beautiful. Fun fact, uh, so anvil is actually a pretty standard percussion instrument in um, in what we call classical percussion, symphonic percussion. Um, however, uh, we have a modern um, alternative that we use instead of an actual anvil because it's impossible to carry around an anvil. Because they weigh 85 pounds. <laughs> yes. So our sort of, and it doesn't exactly sound the same, but we get kind of that, It's we use it for that metallic sound. The modern equivalent is the brake drum from a car. And yeah. so I we used to use brake drums all the time and I my our solution to that was is uh instead of you know paying for a brake drum I would go around to different auto shops and ask them if they had old brake drums that you know people had that had broken or people had thrown away and weren't using anymore cuz they're it's, it's so easy to get free brake drums from stores cuz they're just going to throw them out. So I mean we always had like a plethora of different size brake drums that we could find. All right, so Maxwell Silver Hammer trivia for you, John. Okay, hit me. What kind of science was she studying? Metaphysical? Ooh, very, very close. So metaphysics is the study of being. It's the right. highest level of philosophy. She was studying pataphysical. Pataphysical. Pataphysical, which is a made-up term, not made up by the Beatles, made up by the inventor of pataphysics, but it supposedly describes that which is above metaphysics, which, metaphysically speaking, is impossible. That's like saying a four-sided triangle or a married bachelor. You can't have above metaphysics, but that's what pataphysics apparently is. It's nonsense. All right. Well, that's good to know. Uh, all right, Adam, I think we're on to your number five. We are, uh, and I've got, uh, this is my one deep cut, because um, there are some interesting stuff on the anthology album and stuff that, you know, not just the one, um, the big hit, big hits, there's a couple ones. This was not a single at all, uh, but it is just a beautiful song to me, and it is You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. I can see them laugh at me, and I hear them say. Didn't make my list. Yeah, not uh, my top 25, but I love it. Fair. Yeah. Um, it's written and sung by John Lennon from their 1965 album, Help. But it, when I, because I looked up some stuff about it, what he says is this was basically during his Dylan period. Like he would hear other people and kind of like, you know, emulate their style. And, and I absolutely hear that Dylan influence. And I like uh, Bob Dylan quite a bit. And so I think, I think that style always gravitated me towards this song because of that. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's a very, it's a very Dylan-esque pretty song. I like it a lot. I like Lennon's voice in it. Uh, and apparently the lyrics, there's been speculation, the meaning of it. Some say 
they think it's about Lennon who had to try and kind of keep his marriage a secret, a secret kind of a thing as a Beatle, you know, you don't want to just go out there and, you know, you're still trying to, you know, be a, you know, have that appearance of being a bachelor. Others have written that it's about um, their manager, Brian Epstein, Epstein, um, Epstein. Had to, Epstein, thank you, that he had to hide his homosexuality from the public. And it could be about that. Um, but either way, the song is fantastic. If you're ever worried about uh, how to pronounce his name, it's Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein. Okay. All right. Uh, Will, what is your number five? Okay. So anytime you're doing a top 10 list, obviously uh, that 10, 11 is a big tear break. Uh, you, you put a lot of thought into that. And that 5, 6 is a big break as well. What's in the top five? What is not? Uh, and num- my number five is most Beatlefiles number one or number two. So it wouldn't shock me if either one of you have this higher, uh, but it's a day in the life. I read the news today, oh boy, about a lucky man who made the grade. And woke up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. Didn't make my list. I've got to go listen to it. All right. I don't know it. Well, then let's talk about it for a little bit. Uh, One of the things I love so much about A Day in the Life is early in the Beatles' career, uh, Lennon-McCartney, every song that's written by Paul or by John is credited Lennon-McCartney. Um, and on Please Please Me, they were doing Lennon-McCartney, and the plan was to do on the second album, McCartney-Lennon, uh, McCartney-Lennon, but they kind of decided that didn't sound as good, so they just kept the McCart- uh, Lennon-McCartney for the entirety of their career. Early on, they really were collaborating on almost every song. They were working together on the lyrics, on the music, making things fit. Uh, as they grew as artists... They also grew apart, which you can tell just by paying attention and listening to the music, the songs. Um, A Day in the Life is arguably, if you don't count the medley as a collaboration, um, A Day in the Life is maybe the last great collaboration between Paul and John. Uh, John wrote this song when he learned about a person dying. Uh, he, He wrote these verses about blowing his mind down in a car and people stood and stared. Uh, he wrote about how many holes were in the wall and if you measured them, how many there were. Uh, and and he did the math and found out, well, if there's this many holes for each person, well, then it takes this many holes to fill the Albert Hall. But he didn't have the the glue to bring the whole song together. So we asked Paul, whether he was working on anything that would fit. And Paul's like, well, I kind of am. I've got this weird song about a guy who wakes up and he has to go to work, but he's not really living his life. He's just going through the motions. And they ended up putting their two songs together as one song with John's verses as the dream. And you can hear the orchestra in the back, the ah, and then all of a sudden an alarm clock goes off. Woke up, got out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. Uh, And... Paul goes through everyday life, gets to work, takes a break, and he and he 
goes off into a daydream and it's back to John's song again uh, where he has another dream about death. It's it's a beautiful back and forth, almost like a conversation between the realm of reality and the and the realm of dream. Very cool story. I listened to it a little bit. I didn't recognize it, but um, I'll have to listen to it like on my own because it sounded good. And, and knowing that story, it's even cooler. Yeah. It's the very last song on the album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It's after the reprisal. Um, and uh, they wanted to end with an orchestra. So they, they, they wanted a big, big orchestra. But instead of having a big orchestra, they did something that, you know, is very Beatles. Uh, they decided, we'd like to have a 160-piece orchestra. And uh, their producer was like, no, we don't have room or money for that. Okay, well then, how about we just have a sixty-piece orchestra or forty-piece orchestra, and we'll record them four times, and we'll put them all together. Like, okay, <laughs> well, we'll do that. They decided four wasn't enough, so they recorded them five times, put off five, so they had a two hundred-piece orchestra, uh, and they told every member of the orchestra to go through their notes to get to their high sound at their own speed. So that's at the end of the song, you can hear all of these instruments going at different speeds to get up and up and up the, the scale, uh, all culminating in a big crash. Uh, and after the crash, it goes to silence. It just lets the note linger, waits there for several seconds until you can hear nothing. Then you hear something that people have been listening to for the last 50, 60 years trying to decipher. Never to see any other one, never to see any other one, never to see... People try to listen to that and figure out what it says. First of all, we don't actually hear what's there because the Beatles decided it would be hilarious if during that silence they inserted a very, very, very high-pitched, loud noise that only dogs would hear. So if you listen to the record, Sergeant Pepper, uh, with your dog around, all of a sudden your dog will go crazy and start jumping and barking, <laughs> going nuts, and nobody had any idea. They thought that was hilarious. They made every dog in England just go nuts on their owner for no reason. Uh, also, when you're listening to a record, they have a groove at the end where it gets stuck and just goes around and around until you pull the needle out. That's what that is. So it's just noise that they, nonsense noise that they put into the groove and decided to leave there. So if you were playing it on a record, you could literally play that never to see any other one, never to see any other one forever. It would just go and go and go. When they re-released it on CD, they decided to put that in a few times just so that people listening to a CD would have a little bit of that same experience. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. All right. Let's go ahead on to my number four. Yeah. All right. My number four uh, might be on Adam's list. I'm not sure. Um, I love this song. I would just have to say as as a whole, my favorite album uh, is Sgt. Pepper's. Um, I think as a whole, I just, I've, there are more songs I think on that one that I, I can listen to it all the way through um, just easier. I don't know. I just, I just like the songs um i not all of the songs on there i would say are my you know are on my favorites but a few of them are and one of them is this one which i will arguably say someone else did it better but i still like this version and that's with a little help from my friends what would you think if i sang out a tune would you stand up and walk out on me Sing out a key Oh, I get by With a little help from my friend 
not do it better. He 100% did it better. Like 10 times better. Yeah. Uh, but- <laughs> Winnie, Co- Winnie Cooper is nothing uh, but... <laughs> She's not even a Jesse Spano. Uh, I mean... Jesse Spano isn't even a Jesse Spano. Yeah. I know. I... Uh, Go ahead, Adam. She's definitely no uh, Kelly I was just going to say, they're all hot. They're all hot. They're all awesome and crushable. That You can crush on all of them. Oh, okay. So, uh, so number 16 on my list is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band slash With a Little Help from My Friends, because that is one song. Sure, if you want to say it that way. I don't consider it one song. <laughs> I consider it two separate songs. Um, He's a lawyer, John. It's by the book I, for I know. him. Well, I know. Mean, the lawyer would say they're two songs. <laughs> I'm, I'm a beat, I, I, I listen to them, and there is no break between them. Uh, in fact, the end of Sgt. Pepper is Billy Shears, and then Billy Shears sings. Again, I do kind of like the joke. I like the Joe Cocker better version, but that doesn't detract at all, I think, from this one. It's still a, a great song. One of the few ones that I actually like that Ringo sings. So, uh, actually, they tried to have a song for Ringo on every single album. I think they do have at least one for him on every single album. Uh, and they wrote that song for Ringo to sing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the origi- the first lyric of it, do you guys know the first lyric? What would you think if I sang out of tune? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you? Stand up and walk out on me. Stand up and walk out on me was not the original lyric. The first lyric was, would you throw a tomato at me? And Ringo made them change it because he said, lads, if, if we keep that line, they're going to throw tomatoes at me. <laughs> That's uh, probably what happened. There was an interview where he was asked about his favorite candy, and he told everybody his favorite candy was jelly beans. And so trying to be friendly, trying to be nice, fans started throw, tossing jelly beans to Ringo during concerts. And he would get pelted with thousands of jelly beans. <laughs> but all these people were trying to, hey, I gave Ringo a jelly bean. Uh, he was convinced that if they left that lyric in, that people would start throwing tomatoes. Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, they, they he made them change it. They came up with Walk Out On Me. Maybe next time say marshmallows. Yeah, <laughs> a little exactly. bit softer. <laughs> I think he was done with food being thrown in his general direction entirely. Uh, money, uh, dollars, dollar bills. Yeah, uh, there you go. Exactly. So uh, the very last, you know, that, that last note uh, of the, with a little help from my friend, that last high note. Yes. Ringo was absolutely convinced that he couldn't hit that note. Um, and he begged them to change it. Um, and Paul refused to change it. He said, you can do it. I know you can do it. And the way that he helped him do it was to get in the mic with him uh, and made him think that they were going to sing it together. So Ringo was like, all right, this is going to be a, a duet. We're gonna, I'm going to sing with Paul this one note. Uh, and he gets ready, and then as soon as he goes to that note, Paul just backs up, and Ringo belts it out. So uh, there are people who will say that Ringo did indeed get a little high with his friends. Uh, and his uh, friends were the ones that were able to get him to hit that high note. Sounds like uh, Paul was a bit of a jerk, and he did that to Ringo <laughs> on the on the uh, drum solo thing and the singing thing. Yeah, <laughs> he was uh, he was a genius who knew how to get the best out of people. Okay, there you go. That's a that's that's what you call a good producer who can get the most out of their performers. Uh, my bias is showing. Paul is by far and away my favorite Beatle. Uh, and I understand people that say that, you know, he he's the one that broke up the band. I, I get that theory, and, and the evidence is there for it. Um, and, yeah, he did a few things, telling people one thing was going to happen and then just changing it. Speaking of conspiracy theories, have you heard the theory that Paul McCartney, the real Paul McCartney, is dead? And this is like some... <laughs> clone or something i've never heard this adam tell me about it oh god i gotta 
Okay, <laughs> well, I'm just kidding. Yes, I'm... Oh, okay, I don't know. I never... My, my dumb buddy told me about this. He's convinced that Paul McCartney uh, is like a clone or some crap like that. So, yeah, the, the theory is that Paul died in... I think... I can't remember if it was 65 or 66, and that they found some other person to play Paul for the rest of the career. And there are, there are hints throughout, yeah. uh, you know, for example, you can hear John uh, singing, Paul is dead. Paul. No, he was singing cranberry sauce. Listen to the song. He says cranberry <laughs> sauce. Uh, the cover of Abbey road has a beetle, a Volkswagen beetle with a license plate that says 28. If, Oh my gosh, if Paul was still alive, he'd be 28. No, he'd be 27. You know, count, you know his birthday. He was 27 when it came out, not 20. Like, there's all these things that really don't quite fit. But these, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if you know this. People are really stupid, and they'll believe things. They follow these conspiracy theories. Paul is dead as the original QAnon. I'll tell you. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right, Adam. I believe we're on your number four. Um, Paul. So for similar to Will, Paul or this alien being who is posing as Paul um, is also my favorite Beatle. Uh, that's why my next, this one and my next three, uh, it's all Paul songs from here. Uh-oh, uh-oh, Adam and I might have the same top four. I love it. <laughs> uh, my number four, I think, has a good chance on being someone else's list yesterday. Oh, later on my list. Okay. All right. Actually, all right, my number four is yesterday. Yesterday all my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be There's a shadow hanging over me Oh, yesterday came suddenly Hey, look at us. We did a thing. Yesterday not did your... not make my list. That's crazy, Ooh. man. So we still don't have a single one on all of our lists. Adam, I, I, I applaud you at setting the over-under at 20. If we had actually wagered on this, you'd be bringing home some buco bucks. Uh, yeah, I think I think we're pretty much getting about 15 or something now. So I think we're, we're close to it. Yeah. But um, uh, so that's, yeah. So yesterday would have been pre-Paul is dead. If that theory was uh, correct, which is not. Um, but if it were, th- yesterday was written before he would have died. Um, but yeah, so this weird guy that just happened to look like Paul that they that they found uh, was able to write songs like, like Hey Jude. Uh, like, no, <laughs> he didn't just happen to find somebody who was one of the greatest bass players in the world who looked like Paul and who was able to write a song like Hey Jude. Um, yesterday. Uh, remember I said earlier about uh, something in the way she moves attracts me like a cauliflower. Yesterday, famously, Paul woke up. He dreamt the music of yesterday. He woke up with that song in his head. He started playing it and humming it ever. It was driving everybody nuts. People told him to stop, but he was convinced the song was too good. He couldn't have just come up with it in his sleep. He had to be robbing somebody. It's like he had to have heard it somewhere when he was a kid. Um but he didn't know the lyrics of it. So the original lyrics were scrambled eggs. Mm-hmm. Not yesterday. Scrambled eggs. <laughs> yeah. I really, uh, really like your legs. <laughs> wow. 
uh, on the Help album from '65, hit number one in the U.S. Um, it's it's pretty much it's the song. There's like no other Beatle who even like pretty much even appears on the song. It's him uh, getting an acoustic guitar and like a string quartet, and that's it. But it's correct. It's gorgeous. It's just an absolutely beautiful song. I mean, played by we talked about Come Together having a, a good bit of covers. This one. I saw has over 2,000 different cover versions of this song. One of, if not the most covered song in history. It, it is, in fact, the most covered song yeah. in history. Not not most Beatles song, not Paul song. The most covered song yeah. ever. Um, apparently, some, something else that I had read, and only my read is went through Wikipedia, but it said the final recording was so different than other works that the beat that the rest of the band vetoed it from being released in the UK. Um, because it was, you know, again, it was just him. But then eventually it did come out in 1976 and hit number eight in the UK market. But in the US, it was allowed as a single, but just not the UK at the time. Well, it was also, uh, they wouldn't, the Beatles, uh, like a lot of British bands at the time, didn't release songs that were on albums as singles. They released their singles and then released their albums that didn't include those songs because they didn't think it was fair to their fans who went out and spent a dollar on the 45 to have to buy a record that only had 13 songs and one of them be the one they already paid for. Do you have a do you have a favorite cover version of Yesterday? I like Paul McCartney's <laughs> version. <laughs> yes. It's it's the best one, I will say. Yes. No, I do not have a favorite cover of of Yesterday. I do. You mentioned uh the Michael Jackson cover of Come Together and I think you mentioned it as that song is so terrible that even a good artist yes. like Michael Jackson couldn't make it sound good. Um <laughs> That is my favorite Beatles cover of a Beatles song okay. is Michael Jackson's cover of Come Together. I think that's a fantastic song. Uh, but no, I do not have a favorite cover of okay. Yesterday. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. There is a, there's one that's not a cover. It's a parody, almost like a Weird Al type parody by a guy named Tim Hawkins. Um, and he sings a song, Chick-fil-A. Oh, <laughs> like I could eat there seven times a day. Nice and true. <laughs> I need waffle fries in front of me. It's amazing. It's so funny. Are we on our top three now? Uh, I think so. All right, we finally made it. We finally made it. Uh, I all right. My number three. I believe Adam already mentioned it, uh, and that is Obladio Blada. What a fun song! It's catchy. It's it's poppy. It's so it's exact. You just you can't you listen to it. You can't help but smile. Yep, I like the the very sort of like bar piano sound that they get out of it. Upright, almost almost kind of out of tune. Not quite not quite exactly in tune. I mean, it it, it literally sounds like uh, uh, I don't know who's playing it. Either. I'm assuming it's probably Paul. Um, it's just like literally sitting at a piano in a bar. You know, singing this song. I'm assuming it's going to be in a bar in Hawaii. So, <laughs> uh, so a couple things about Obladiobada. Number one, this is a little bit uh, inside baseball for the podcast. Um, but Friday, I was tweaking my list, and one of the things that has been bothering me for the last two or three weeks 
is that Here Comes the Sun and Obladi were not in my top 10. And the reason is they both bring me so much joy. Like, I cannot hear those songs without smiling from ear to ear. They make me happy. And the fact that they make me so happy isn't that reason enough to find a way to put them in the top 10. So I, I re, redid the, you know, the 8 to 15-ish and moved both of those into the top 10. Later that day, um, I was really bothered by uh, another song not being in there, and I had to make another adjustment, which apparently my sharing that with you guys uh, resulted in you both thinking I was saying I couldn't record the podcast right now, <laughs> but I was talking about my, my rankings. Um, Obla Obladao was a song that was written in India uh, at Rikishat, Rishikesh. Um, while they were at a retreat by the Maharishi Mahashi Yogi. A lot of the songs off the White Album and, in fact, off of Abbey Road as well were written while they were on that retreat in India. Uh, there was a guy there who would say that all the time. That was his, you know, no worries or everything's good or it's all good, man, whatever. He would say, oh, bloody, oh, um, Paul loved that phrase and he wrote a song around it. However, he never got that song quite right. Uh, and he made them, made the Beatles replay and replay and try and try again to get that song right, like 75 or 100 times. Um, Paul, uh, John got so mad about it, he he threw his pen down. And he goes, you want to know how Obladi should sound? You really, you want to know? You want to know? And he pulled out a different piano, an old, uh, is it called a Jing, Django box or Django box? Okay, you know what I'm talking yeah, about, yeah. John? I think I know. Uh, and he goes, this is what it should sound like. Ding, 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 ding. And Paul's like, damn, that is what it should sound like. <laughs> and from that point on, it was a new instrument in the song, and that got what Paul wanted. It took, you know, 75 or 100 tries of Paul not getting it right and John just having none of it. <laughs> like, okay, shut up. This is why we're doing it. Let's move on and do something real, like like Revolution 9. Oh, oi. <laughs> And as we already mentioned, this is a 45 that we had, mm -hmm. so it got pretty good um, rotation, you know, back when we are still, John and I are in that last little bits of people who did have some 45s and, and some records sitting around, even though we were kind of at the tail of it. But it's because our mother was a jazzercise instructor, and so she had a record player and a bunch of different, like, 80s singles. And this this was a big thing that, why, that I think why a lot of mine, and I'm sure John's and our sister's love of 80s singles was massive is because we had them on a record player and so we would play them pretty often and um it just kind of became a huge nostalgic point but this happened to be one of those those songs and it always kind of strikes a nice nostalgic chord for me yep it is a very very painful number 11 mm -hmm. for me i put it at 11 it's the one that didn't make it and i and i hate that it didn't make it well yeah we'll see so far, that could have been our only shot at uh you know, one on all of our lists, but we still have a few more to go. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, all right, Adam, what's your number three? Uh, my number three, again, another Paul McCartney classic, written very well, gorgeous song about John Lennon's son, or for his son, Hey Jude. Later on my list. Okay. Ah, didn't make not, my, not on your didn't list, Didn't make John? my list. Wow, okay. Uh, all right. Uh, well, what's your number three? My number three is uh, another Paul McCartney song. Actually, uh, all four of my of my my top four are all Paul McCartney, and number five is a collaboration. Um, it is a song that was directly inspired by the song or the movie Psycho, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock movie. Uh, it is Eleanor Rigby. Higher on my I list. I was going to say higher on my list. Hey, we got one. <laughs> 
Uh, all right. Well, let's see. Let's see where that uh, ranks. Uh, Adam, or my number two. Um, yep. uh, okay, so I, I'm guessing my number two is not going to show up on anyone's list. And to be fair, uh, this one is a song that is very personal, personal to me in that it is my favorite Beatles song to play myself. Um, and I do not play it on the drums. I play it on the guitar because the only two instruments that appear on this song are the guitar and a metronome, and that is Blackbird. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes and learn to see All your life You are only waiting for this moment to be free Blackbird fly Blackbird fly Into the line of a dark black night It is is a beautiful, amazing song. Uh, It is a common misconception to say that it is a metronome. It is not a metronome. Uh, And the way you know that is because you can watch video recordings of Paul recording it, uh, uh, playing it. It is his foot tapping on the floor of the studio. But that is how good he is, that that he is tapping his foot so precisely, so systematically, with the same power every tap that it sounds exactly like a metronome Mm -hmm. behind him. That's fair. Um, One of the other things that's also interesting about this song is a lot of people love to play it, but they actually use a... uh, uh, it never quite sounds exactly like how Paul did it, and that's because when you're finger-picking a guitar, the the most common thing is to use a three-fingered uh, picking technique with your thumb, first finger, and middle finger. Paul only used two fingers, so when he was using his index finger, he would kind of strum the, the strings on the way up, which made him sound... Slightly different, which is why when most people pluck it, it doesn't exactly sound like the way Paul did it because Paul was actually strumming with his finger on the way up. Um, also, it is one of the few Beatles songs I can actually sing all the way through. Like, I actually play the song. Um, it was one of my go to songs to sing when I was teaching elementary school. Um, it helped that the song was popularly used on the movie Boss Baby, so all of the kids knew the song. <laughs> It that believe it or not that helped a lot. So that would be uh, a, a lot of times if I had like a few minutes left in the class, I would just play a song, and often it would be Blackbird, mostly because like a kid would request it, like oh play back Blackbird again, and so I would sing that one because they saw it on Boss Baby, and now now they know what the song is. And listening to it, um, I definitely do recognize it. I, now I just don't know enough of their songs off the top of my head, right? But th- their songs have been in so many different types of media that. I've heard them at one point point or another. I just don't know them, you know, what the name of it is. Especially after Michael Jackson bought the catalog. They, uh, <laughs> yes. they started getting in a lot of commercials at that point. Um, Blackbird. Uh, so bird was, uh, was a slang term in the sixties for uh, a girl, a woman. Um, and your bird can sing is about uh, somebody else's girlfriend who could sing. Um, Blackbird, some people say, and and they're probably right, is about an African American woman uh, in the midst of the uh, the civil rights era in America. Uh, the Beatles were not heavily involved in the civil rights struggle. I mean, they weren't here; they were in England. But one thing 
that did happen is uh, one of their tours, uh, they had a show scheduled in Jacksonville, Florida uh, at the Gator Bowl, and they learned that the Gator Bowl was a segregated stadium, uh, and they announced that they would not play unless there was no segregation of their audience, that anybody could sit anywhere. They would not play. They would refund all of the money that they'd been paid. They would not play that night. Uh, they would not put up with segregation at all. Uh, and the city of Jacksonville backed down and had the first integrated concert in Florida history at uh, a Beatles concert in the Gator Bowl. That's awesome. Very, Yeah, very cool bit of history there. Money, Money talks. Yep. Even against racism. Exactly right. Yeah, you're not going to get the Beatles concert. You're going to have to give all your money back. How about you wake up and realize this is crap and doesn't yep. matter? So when they first, uh, uh, John mentioned the you know the metronome and the guitar. And again, it's not a metronome; it's his foot. But regardless, there is one other sound uh, in it, and it's the sound mm. of a bird. Uh, and most of the Beatles audio clips were pulled off of EMI's uh, nature sounds. Like they had these sounds, they right. had those sounds. Um, so they tried to find the sound of a blackbird and they realized where it was. It was, I don't know, track 19 or whatever. And so they're counting down on the record to play the right one uh, and they start playing it uh, for the beginning of the song. One of the engineers comes in uh, and it happened to be a guy who was into bird watching and he goes, isn't this song Blackbird? And they're like, yeah. And he goes, that's a thrush. Like, what? That, 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 that bird, that's a thrush. And they realized they counted like, oh, damn, I counted wrong. So we were very, very close to having the sound of a thrush uh, opening Blackbird. Uh, turns out one sound engineer happened to realize that was the wrong bird, and they corrected it and put it in a Blackbird. That's weird because a Blackbird is a thrush. Anyway, doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. All this bird knowledge. I didn't, yeah, look at, you. look at you with your bird law. Uh, <laughs> How about you and I go toe to toe on bird law? See what's I, I only know that because I'm looking at it in Wikipedia right oh, now. <laughs> <laughs> Literally on the thing, it says call here inspired by the hearing call of a blackbird, and if you click on it, it says gray winged blackbird is a species in the thrush family. <laughs> huh. Okay. So, uh, all right, uh, where are my number two? Adam, your number two. My number two, I think, was way down your list on number nine or something like that, uh, and it's let it be. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Let it be, let it be, let it be. Let it be Whisper words of wisdom Let it be That was my number 10. Oh, it's your it's Will's number 10. Yeah. Okay, okay. Didn't make my list. Um, no, Let It Be is a gorgeous song. 70 from the Let It Be album. Um, and apparently at the time it had the highest debut uh, on the Billboard Hot 100 starting at number 6. Uh, eventually hit number one in the U.S. and the U.K. A uh, bit of trivia, Will. What was the first song to ever debut at number one on the Billboard Hot 100? The first song to ever debut at number one? We've, I don't know. We've mentioned this artist multiple times uh, already on this podcast. All right, then I'm going to guess Billie Jean. Great guess. Uh, different song. It's actually Black or White. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, but yeah. Honestly, that's later than I would have expected. 
Uh, me too. It, absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of strange that it wasn't until the 90s when that happened. Yeah. So, I mean, this is just, I think, a, a fan favorite for a lot of people. Um, you know, it's it's uh, what Paul and his and the piano mostly, and it's just it's really gorgeous. Singing about his mother. Yeah. And so most people who hear that song have always and continue to think that it's about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Yes. It, it is not. Now, it fits mm-hmm. about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and Paul is comfortable with that. He, he likes that, uh, but it was written about his own mother coming to him and calming him. Yeah, it's very cool. And again, I danced to, with my mother at my wedding to that song. All right, well, what was your number two? My number two, uh, I told you my youngest daughter is named Abby Rose. Um, my preferred name for her was Penelope Lynn, uh, but my wife doesn't like the name Penny. Uh, Penny Lane. On the corner is a banker with a motor car. The little children laughing him behind his back. Didn't make my list, but I do like that didn't song. Make my list. Yes, definitely. So I will be curious. Uh, obviously, it's not on uh, Adam's list. Um, I would have, I would have expected it to be on John's list, um, but we're going to talk about it now because we have to. Can't talk about one without the other. Uh, there are many, many people who would tell you that, at the very least, the kind of Beatles fan that you are if not the kind of person you are, is determined by which you prefer, Penny Lane or Strawberry Fields Forever. Oh, Penny Lane. Penny Lane, for sure. Okay, yeah. interesting. I, w- I would have guessed pegged you as a Strawberry Fields yeah. guy, John. No, I like the song, but I, you know, nine times out of ten, I would prefer Penny Lane. So uh, when they decided they were done touring because uh, every, like, they would go to these concerts and all it would be was 50, 100,000 people screaming at the top of their lungs. They're playing through crappy speakers. They can't even hear themselves, much less put on a good concert. They decided they were done. They put on their last uh, public concert before the rooftop concert. Uh, The last concert was at Candlestick Park in San Francisco, and they were done touring. They were going to be a studio band. And because they were going to be a studio band, they could put significantly more time and effort into their recordings. Uh, And they decided that they were going to make a concept album. A concept album was something that didn't exist yet. It wasn't a concept. But they decided to make one album that was not just a collection of songs, but a cohesive whole. And this concept was going to be about growing up in Liverpool. John wrote a song about the orphanage that was around the corner from where he grew up, uh, this place called Strawberry Field, uh, and how much joy he had playing uh, at Strawberry Field with the orphans. And Paul wrote a companion piece to Strawberry Fields Forever about a roundabout in Liverpool called Penny Lane and the things that he would see, the barber shaving another customer, uh, the the fire truck, uh, the, the banker man getting out of the rain, Um, All these things that he would see on the street, he wrote a song about it. Uh, And those two songs were released as 
the uh, the Beatles' first double A side. Uh, they did not tell people which was the A side single, which was the single and which was the B side to it. They just released a double A. They were both played on the radio. Uh, they were companion pieces, but all of a sudden their entire concept album that became Sgt. Pepper that was supposed to be about growing up in Liverpool, they lost their biggest two songs about that. Uh, they their, their songs about growing up that they were going to match all the other songs to, uh, they released them as a single because Brian Epstein was freaking out. Everybody was worried that the Beatles hadn't put out any music. They, they didn't have a Christmas release in 1965, um, or 1966, excuse me, and uh, the there wasn't a single, there wasn't a Christmas release, everybody thought maybe the Beatles had broken up, and Epstein was trying to renegotiate a new record deal, uh, and he needed a single in order to do that, so he, he took Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane, released a double A-sided single, and they had to come up with a new concept for Sgt. Pepper. Wow. I don't know where, I'm, I'm already lost. You, for, you forgot where we're at? Yeah. <laughs> That was my okay, number that was two. Number Penny, two. Lane. Penny Lane was Will's number two. We're on to our number ones, John. All right, uh, and I, I think you and I have the same number one, Adam. Yeah, it's been spoiled, but it's totally cool. Uh, Eleanor Rigby. What a fantastic song. I mean, obviously, it's uh, without... I mean, it's the only one that has made all of our lists, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is definitively... I'm saying here and now, this is the greatest <laughs> Beatles song of all time because of that fact. Uh, and it was, what, three for Will and one for you and me? Uh, it is a rarely known fact that... Uh, Three random guys in America <laughs> determining their top ten is the definitive ranking yes. of what makes for the greatest Beatles song of all time. Not a lot of people knew that, but we have that kind of power. Exactly. That we do. Uh, hit number 11 in the U.S., but number one in the U.K. Uh, and in our hearts. And exactly. Obviously in our hearts on the Revolver album uh, from 66. And it, to me, it's got that full sound with the strings added to it. Mm -hmm. Like there's just... There is something special about the sound that you're getting from Eleanor Rigby. And the, uh, oddly enough, no, none of the Beatles are playing instruments in this song. It's all the strings. They're singing. Um, uh, the only one not singing on this one, I think, is Ringo. Um, George is doing some harmony. John's doing some harmony. And partney, uh, Paul's doing leads and some harmonies. Um, but all of the instruments is coming from a, a doubled octet. So it was, it was a octet... Uh, string section and I believe they doubled it maybe tripled it I don't know and that it just makes for this awesome kind of almost haunting song very haunting yep. so uh, I, I mentioned before uh, the the movie Psycho uh, think about the shower scene in Psycho think about the music that's playing how does it go <laughs> yes now listen to Eleanor Rigby again yeah. that is in the song the song is built around the shower scene in Psycho that's very cool <laughs> so we, we talked earlier about paul um not really caring about lyrics mm -hmm. uh and eleanor rigby plays into that quite a bit uh for a couple of reasons uh this was uh one of ringo's 
big contributions to the art, the finished product of the Beatles early on. Uh, number one, do uh, you guys know the characters in Eleanor Rigby offhand? Can you think? I mean, obviously one of them is Eleanor Rigby. Do you know the other one? Father McKenzie. Yeah. Father McKenzie, right. So Paul, two things happened that Ringo cured up on both. Number one, Paul could not come up with a third character. He wanted a third character for the third verse. And Ringo said, hey, mate, why don't you just have the same two and have Father doing her funeral? And Paul's like, well, that's a really good idea. And it brings it all together. So he had the same two characters coming together uh, in the third verse. But more importantly and more interestingly in my mind, how little lyrics matter to Paul. Uh, Father McKenzie was not the original name. Do you guys know the original name? I think it was Father McCartney, wasn't it? It was Father McCartney. And Ringo said, if you call him Father McCartney, everybody's going to think it's about you. (laughs) And Paul's like, no, they won't. And Ringo's like, yes, they will. I promise you, they will. So he literally went through the phone book to try to find a name that would fit with that cadence because the cadence is what mattered to him. And he found Mackenzie, and Mackenzie worked for him. Yep. Now, I've heard different stories uh, of that, that Eleanor Rigby was um, an existing person who they found in a graveyard. And then I've also heard that he actually just made up the name. So it is a little bit of all of the above. Number one, there was a person named Eleanor Rigby. However, the Beatles probably never heard of her. She was, in fact, buried in a cemetery in Liverpool. You can go to Liverpool today and you can find the gravestone for Eleanor Rigby. Is it possible that Paul saw that gravestone and it stuck in the back of his... Of course it's possible. He's probably been to that cemetery a dozen times. He's probably seen that gravestone. But... The name Eleanor was found in, I believe, a phone book. And the name Rigby came from a male clothing store, Rigby's uh, um, haberdashery or something like that. Uh, And he put those together, Eleanor Rigby, for the sound. He liked that the hard G followed by the B. Um, So, yes, Eleanor Rigby was a real person. Yes, there's a real gravestone. Yes, it's in Liverpool. But Paul will tell you that he created the name because he liked the sound of it. And, and that works. I mean, the name works really well for the song. And if it was kind of implanted in the back of his memory, it just adds to the haunting nature of the song yeah. that he didn't even know that Eleanor Rigby put herself in that song. I wonder who she was. I've never bothered to look. Yeah. All right. Too lazy. All right. Well, we finally, we finally made it to the, to the peak, to the mountaintop. Your number one. Well, my number one, we've already mentioned, uh, and... Uh, because you guys have already listed your number ones, I'm going to give my honorable mentions real quick. Sure. Uh, Strawberry Fields Forever, uh, Come Together, which we talked about. Uh, one song that I'm surprised we haven't talked about is almost uh, John's version of yesterday. It's called In My Life. Uh, and then While My Guitar Gently Weeps and Obla D. So uh, we, we actually talked about almost all of my uh, honorable mentions already, but I'm surprised we didn't get to In My Life. Uh, my number one has been spoiled, uh, but that is okay. It is not my favorite Paul song. It is not my favorite Beatles song. Uh, it is my favorite song of all time. I love it more than any other song I've ever heard. It is Hey Jude. Hey Jude, don't let me down. You have found her.
already mentioned uh, that it was written for Julian, uh, which is true. John had uh, asked for a divorce from his wife, Cynthia, and uh, Julian was having a great bit of trouble dealing with his parents breaking up. Um, and Paul wrote the song, Hey Jules, for Julian, telling him that it was going to be okay, that he, he will be able to find the joy in the world. Uh, and that is what Hey Jude is about. It is about finding your passion, finding your joy amidst the suffering of the world. Um, and then in a very Polish way, he decided that Hey Jules didn't have the right cadence. So he just changed the guy's <laughs> name and it became Hey Jude. Um, yeah. But it was written for Julian. However, because Paul didn't talk with the other Beatles about what it was about and because he had changed it from Jules to Jude, it didn't occur to John that the song was about his son. And so John was 100% convinced that the song was about John, that it was about him, and that the song was about Paul telling John that now that he had found Yoko, he had to go for it. <laughs> you have found her. Now go and get her. Wow. John was completely convinced Hey Jude was about him him finding his one and only Yoko and that being okay. That Paul and John had been a unit their entire adult lives, but now John knew his purpose and he was no longer Lennon McCartney. He was Lennon Ono. Wow. Paul McCartney really did break up the Beatles. Yeah, no <laughs> Uh, this song uh, hit number one in both the U.S. and the U.K. Um, it's nine-week run at number one, and the Billboard Hot 100 tied the longest at the time. Uh, and also, at over seven minutes, it was the longest single to top the British charts at the time, um, just in, in song length. So, yeah. It's- George Martin, when he, when he heard how long it was, and the Beatles, all of the Beatles, first of all, Revolution was supposed to be the single. Uh, and again, the Beatles put out their singles before they put out their albums. So just like uh, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields were supposed to be on Sgt. Pepper's, but were then released as singles, Revolution and Hey Jude were released as a single. They were supposed to be on the White Album or the Beatles, uh, but they weren't. John wanted Revolution to be the single, uh, but when he realized that Hey Jude was about him and Yoko, that's when he was okay with Hey Jude being the, uh, the single. George Martin when he learned that all four Beatles wanted this seven-minute song to be a single, he was like, we can't do that. Radios are not going to play a seven-minute song. And John's response was, we're the Beatles. They'll play it. Uh, All right. Um, Adam, do you have any honorable mentions you want to throw out? I do, actually. Uh, And only really, well, I'll throw out maybe two. Um, I'll throw out Taxman. Um, because I appreciate the Beatles for writing it because uh, Steve Ray Vaughan took it and made it his, and it is an amazing song, and it is his song. Um, but I also want to throw out Glass Onion, mm-hmm. uh, which is a funky, you know, uh, it's really more so I like the story behind it. Um, apparently, John Lennon wrote the song to confuse people and like the lyrics because they were reading too much into Beatles lyrics, and he and that annoyed him, so he pretty much was trolling people on that song, and I think that's <laughs> fucking awesome. <laughs> Same thing happened uh, with uh, I Am the Walrus. Uh, he learned that his elementary school was dissecting and analyzing his lyrics, and he thought that was hilarious. So he wrote I Am the Walrus just to mess with nice. them. And then Glass Onion took it another level 
because he used other Beatles lyrics in creating the lyrics to Glass Onion. Yeah. Similar to Adam, I'm going to throw out a song that they wrote, but I feel like another band did better, uh, and that is uh, Gotta Get You Into My Life, um, which was uh, uh, done by, oh, God, um, not Earth, Wind, and Fire. Was it Earth, Wind, and Fire? Don't know. I thought it was the Beatles. Covered by, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, Earth, Wind, Earth, and Fire. Wind and Fire, it. yeah, yeah. Their version is yeah. fantastic. Um, I love that one. Um, I Day Tripper, we kind of mentioned that one before. I'm going to throw out two more. Um, one that I really kind of appreciate more for the composition of it is Tomorrow Never Knows. A very kind of psychedelic uh, with uh, some sitar in it. Um, also one where I really love what Ringo did with the drums here. Very little unusual. Um, and then speaking, uh, I mentioned Maxwell Silverhammer, kind of a weird one. Uh, Rocky Raccoon. I love that song. Oh, that's, yeah, funky. Another song with the Django piano. Well, Will, thank you so much. Uh, you brought your passion. You brought your knowledge. This episode would have been nothing if it was just me and John. It would have been fine. <laughs> would have been, you turned it into an amazing, fulfilled episode. I mean, probably our longest top 10, but a, for a good reason. You had so much so knowledge. So basically, Adam, what you're saying is that without me, this episode would have been the Beatles in Adam's eyes. But with me, it's the Beatles in John's eyes. Well, to be fair, without you, this episode probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah, probably. Because <laughs> I probably would have suggested it, and Adam would have been like, no, that's stupid. We're not doing that. <laughs> All right, folks. That was our top 10 Beatles songs. Please join us next time for a patron-suggested episode as we break down the 1984 film Splash, discuss the animated show The Oblongs, and recast Splash using actors of today. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us at blastfromourpast at gmail.com, and if you want to suggest a movie or TV show from your childhood or to be a guest on the podcast, go over to patreon.com backslash blastpastcast and pick a tier that works for you. To find us on social media, search for at blastpastcast. So until next time, I'm John. And I'm Adam. And thanks for joining us. See you next time. Hi, my name is Scott, and I host a nostalgia cast called People Don't Forget. Join me each episode for a deep dive into all things nostalgia. Do you remember your favorite songs from the year 2000 or the TV shows you watched in 2003? If you don't, that's okay. Listen to People Don't Forget and take a particular journey with me down memory lane.